Uh, we are going to study uh, part two of our series um, in this kind of series on fear, fearless, the fearless shepherd. Uh, let me let me pull it up. Oh, I need to turn this on. Sorry, Dave. Here we go. There we go. Fearless in faith. That is what we're going to study tonight. Um, I want to, uh, We're like I said, we're going to be part two, fearless in faith, part two. Uh, last week was the fearless shepherd. This week is the fearless follower. And we're going to cover the second part of Psalm 23, four through six. Um, who loves this Psalm? I want to see a raise of hands. Amazing, right? Um, God showed me more neat stuff this week that um, I'm really excited to get into. Um, but, but hey, before we start there, I want to just to kick us off um, as we're going to dive into this idea of fear and um, being a fearless follower, we have to kind of rid and get past fear. And that, that's something that plagues us every time. But um, any Will Smith fans in the house? I know I am. Oh, cool. There's some of you guys out there. I love Will Smith. He's, uh, he's also, not only is he a great actor, he's a motivational speaker, and he is a Christian, and he loves Jesus. So let me, uh, let me give you this, show you this little video on Will Smith. Skydiving is a really interesting confront with fear. <laughs> I gotta stand up, I'm sorry, I gotta stand up. You go out the night before and you, you know, you take a drink with your friends and somebody says, yeah, we should go skydiving tomorrow. And you go, yeah, we'll go skydiving tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and you go, yeah, and everybody goes, yeah. And you go home by, you by yourself, you're like, hmm. Right, and you're like, well, I mean, they, they was drunk too. So then that night you're laying in your bed and you just keep, <sighs> and you're terrified. You keep imagining over and over again jumping out of an airplane and you can't figure out why you would do that. So you get there and then you have this safety brief and you're standing there and the guys will tell you, well, if the chute doesn't open, what's going to happen is you're doing, you, well, why the hell, why, what could happen? <laughs> So you get onto the airplane and you're sitting there and, and you know, it's extra because you're sitting on some dude's lap, some stranger, <laughs> trying to make small talk. Yeah, man. You, so you do, you'd, be, you'd be jumping with people all the time, huh? You know? <laughs> so you fly and you go up to 14,000 feet and somebody opens the door. And in that moment, you realize you've never been in a freaking airplane with the door open. <laughs> terror, 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 terror. And then people start going out of the airplane. And the guy walks you up to the end of the thing and you're standing and your toes are on the edge and you're looking out down to death. They say on three. and he pushes you on two because people grab on three. And you fall out of the airplane. And in one second, you realize 
that it's the most blissful experience of your life. You're flying. There's zero fear. You realize that the point of maximum danger is the point of minimum fear. The lesson for me was, why were you scared in your bed the night before? What do you need that fear for? Everything up to the stepping out, there's actually no reason to be scared. And then in that moment, all of a sudden, where you should be terrified is the most blissful experience of your life. And God placed the best things in life on the other side of fear. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah, God does that. Top 10 fears. What do you think number one is? Spiders. So it says spiders. What? Public speaking. Public speaking. What you're doing. Oh, what I'm doing. All right. I don't think they put the list up. But here, top 10 fears. I'll read them to you. Number one, flying. Right? So uh, that's number one. Number two, public speaking. I'm terrified up here. Number three, heights. So if you're afraid of flying, heights, you got two fears right there. Uh, number four, uh, the dark. Being afraid of the dark, right? As little kids, we were all afraid of the dark. I had to, like, watch TV in, the, in my room. Okay. <laughs> you didn't have any, right, Jim? Yeah. What did you have, a candle or what? No TV. Okay, this, this number five, uh, intimacy. And this is different forms, not just sexual intimacy, but just, you know, getting close to somebody. Uh, number six, death. I would think that would be at the h- higher, right? I think that would be number one. But number seven, failure. Failure. Number eight, rejection. Number nine, spiders. <laughs> Right, Malia? Spiders. <laughs> our house, our house uh, just turns upside down when there's a spider. So, and, and lastly, number 10, commitment. Commitment. So, yeah, so that's a list of silly fears. Um, but we got a big God, right? And he can overcome so many of those fears when we are with him, when we are near him. Uh, we're going to cover that a lot today, but hey, let's, let's stand. We're going to read Psalm 23 again together as one big happy family. And again, the theme of this psalm is in the very first verse. All right, let's say it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray over that. Lord, thank you for 
this beautiful and wonderful psalm. We pray, God, that you would teach us tonight uh, and show us in your word how this psalm impacts our lives, how it impacts um, our relationship with you, our good shepherd. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint uh, the teaching of your word through your Holy Spirit and that you would anoint the hearing of your word through your children. And we thank you and we praise you and we give you honor tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said? All right, have a seat. Yeah, a couple, couple takeaways that we had, um, uh, or just a recap from last week. Uh, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I believe that is the theme of Psalm 23. I shall not want. When the good shepherd is near, what's going to happen? We will not fear. Amen. He takes away our anxious thoughts. We are content and satisfied because our needs are met in the riches of Christ. We learned that through verse one last week. Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We learn that Jesus, our good shepherd, removes our fears. He removes the fuss, right? Friction and famine so we can lay down to graze off the word of life and drink deeply from the wells of his spirit. Number three, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And it says, finally, our good shepherd rescues us. He restores us and he releases us on mission for his glory and for his namesake. I love that. And again, the takeaway from last week is that Jesus is our faithful, fearless, and loving shepherd. And this week, we're going to learn because of Jesus and because he is the good shepherd, we can lead and follow him with the same faithfulness, fearlessness, and love that he has bestowed upon us. I take great comfort in that because I do not want to be a sheep that is fearful. I, I definitely want to be fearless, um, especially when I have such a great God and a great king. Again, the theme of the psalm is the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is our fearless shepherd. What a fearless leader does so well is he creates fearless followers. And that is you and I. The sheep feel safe and secure when the shepherd is present. When the shepherd is near, there is what? No fear. Amen. If you're facing fear, bring Jesus near. That's the deal. If you're facing fear, just say that over in your mind. Bring Jesus near. Because he loves us. He's gone a great lengths to show his love for us. I love Romans 8.35. I love this passage. It says in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, there's that word famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I never really understood that until Tom Hunt spoke up and he talked about this Judas goat. Remember at the end of service, he talked about this Judas goat. What's a Judas goat? A Judas goat is a trained goat used in general animal herding. The Judas goat is trained to associate with sheep or cattle, leading them to a specific destination. In stockyards, a Judas goat will lead sheep to slaughter while its, its own life is spared. Judas goats are also used to lead other animals 
to specific pens and onto trucks. And so that's an interesting thought because a Judas goat um, is a crazy thing. I think we follow Judas goats sometimes. I think we follow false teachers and false prophets sometimes. I think at times in, in Christendom, um, we will follow whatever the herd's doing, right? Whatever, which way the sheep are going, we'll go with them. And that's a dangerous thing. And But Jesus, what Jesus is saying in this passage, even though you go astray as a sheep, I will still love you. Nothing will separate me from, your, from my love for you. Even though you go off and you, you um, are going to the slaughter and following in the crowd, I will still love you. And in verse 37, he says, yet, Paul says this, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. I love that God gives us such a clear picture of who he is and who his love is. How can you be fearful when you're loved like this, right? And I think, I think I love that scripture where it says, perfect love casts out all fear, you know, and, and that is the love of Christ that he has for us. So we're going to get into uh, number, number one. Jesus calls us to be fearless followers and to walk with him through life's valleys and death shadows with fervent faith to co- overcome evil. And I, uh, this is verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And that is a key statement for you are with me. And I saw three really cool little things in here um, that I want to highlight and pull out. Um, remember that book I shared with you, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23? Um, I saw this cool thing I want to share with you on page 100. Um, it's the shepherd speaking. This guy is Philip Keller. Great book. I uh, encourage you to get it. it. says, every mountain has its valleys. Its sides are scarred by deep ravines and gulches and draws. And the best route to the top is always along the valleys. Any sheepman familiar with the high country knows this. He leads his flock gently but persistently up the paths that wind through the dark valleys. I should be, not- I should be noticed that the verse states, even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It does not say I die there or stop there, but rather I walk through. It is customary to use this verse as a consolation to those who are passing through the dark valley of death. But even here, for the child of God, death is not an end, but merely the door to a higher and more exalted life of intimate contact with Christ. Death is but the dark valley opening out into an eternity of delight with God. It is not something to fear, but an experience through which one passes on the path to more perfect life. The good shepherd knows this. 
It is one reason why he has told us, surely I am with you always. Yes, even in the valley of death. What a comfort and what a cheer. So last week I told you that my dad was on the doorstep of death. So praise God, he went to go be with the Lord Saturday. Yeah, it's really, it's, it, he was suffering really bad. And I, I was praying, Lord, would you take him? And, and last Wednesday, I was sharing with you that, that little intimate phone call that I got from him that morning. And he was saying goodbye. And he was saying, Brad, I love you. And I said, I love you too, Dad. We hung up and I went to my wife and we cried in the kitchen. I, th- I said, I think my dad's going to say goodbye. Now, stubbornly, he's a stubborn man. It took him three days to actually say goodbye. But um, it was neat to be at his bedside Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And finally, Saturday night, I I packed up his things around 9.30 at night. Um, I told him I loved him. I said goodbye. He, he, He had no response. He couldn't respond to me. And three hours later, I got a phone call from the facility that he had passed, that he had gone from this life to the next, which we know is just amazing and, and in the arms of Jesus. And so um, I had many of you praying, and I want to thank you guys for praying, but that was a, that was a wonderful, wonderful um, experience to be with my dad in his last days. And, and so, you know, I, I, I read this, and I, and I really, I, I look at this where it says that death is something that we should not fear. That it's, it's a path to this perfect life that God has given us. I, I, I got to read to my dad Revelation chapter 21 and 22, this beautiful picture of heaven. And, I, and, it, was just, and it, it just calmed my soul. And I'm not sure if he heard it or not, but I was just praying, Lord, would you just translate it to him and that he could just release? And so that, that was something that was fun and Beautiful to share uh, with my dad. One thing that um, we see in this verse that we're going to see in verse four is that there's a big shift because David is now talking in the third person about and bragging about his shepherd. And now we get to the part where David in this time shifts to the first person and he says, and, he, and he, he begins, it's this kind of beautiful little prayer, and it turns into a prayer. And one thing that um, we know that says, yea, though I walk through, notice it doesn't say it, he's not running or frantic. It's not a hurried walk. Um, the sheep are walking confidently and courageously with their shepherd. And it's the confidence and the courage and the demeanor of the shepherd that allows the one following it to to have that calm demeanor. Have you ever been around a manager or somebody in authority who is frantic and crazy? It makes you unsettled. It it really, it kind of, you know, gets you stressed out. Um, But when the, when the, the leader is calm, and that their demeanor is, is focused. It, it brings a lot of comfort and, and calmness to you. And you guys remember um, the Bible stories when you guys were in Sunday school. 
Some of you. Some of you who went to Bible school, Sunday school? See, so raise your hands. Okay, cool. Okay, what were some of the Bible stories that you heard that you loved? David and Goliath. Love that. We're going to cover that one today. What else? Noah's Ark. Yes. What else? Daniel in the lion's den. Amen. What else? Any other ones? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Yeah. And these are all, and what, and when we were, you know, young kids going through Bible Sunday school, what did we think of our God? Reading those stories. He was powerful, right? He's a big God. He could do anything. I believe that. I, I, I hopefully believe that today. I think as we get older and we get more mature in our faith, we tend to get a little more sophisticated and we lose that childlike faith that our God can do anything. And, it, and, it's, um, and he can. And I don't know how we lose that. I don't know if we're studying Greek too much. I don't know what, it, what we do, but some, somewhere we lose this uh, innocence of hearing these stories and saying, wow, my God can do anything, and believing the word of God, believing your Bible. <clears throat> because the, the reality is, is that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we need to know some things. We need to, we need to be... Uh, looking at some things, um, I want to um, I want to share with you um, three little things here. Number one, when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, deliverance in the dark valley experiences. Number one, deliverance in the dark valley experiences. I think this is important because valleys are created through distress, through erosion. Um, However, they are great for channeling water, right? So a lot of water is, is you'll find in valleys. And this is, this is a cool thought. When God carves out valleys in our hearts, think about that, of his people, he uses those valley experiences to deliver water to the li- for the life of others. Think about that. That God uses you and your valley experiences to carry that water to your loved ones. I love this in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And you know, this week especially, I needed that. I had, I had so many friends call me to comfort me and to just encourage me. Uh, one brother, uh, especially... Um, who who had lost his wife just recently. We had dinner together and um, he was able to just sit and walk me through, hey, here's what's going to happen to your dad. 
And he was just able to comfort me and just say, and with the comfort that God had already given to him, he was able to deliver some living water to me uh, through the valley that he already went through. And that was a huge, huge comfort. Yeah, and God allows us to experience pain, suffering, trials, tribulations, and deep, dark valleys for us to help loved ones and even strangers in their time of need. Number two, divine shadow opportunities. There are divine opportunities in the shadows of these valleys. Especially in the dark valley, we can find our shadow opportunities. Shepherds will take their flocks through the valleys during the summer months because it's nice and cool. You know, the sheep need to stay cool. If they overheat, um, they won't make it. The valleys are cool because of the shadow. And like the shadow, that, like, a, like a refreshing tree, that's what the valley provides for the sheep. They, there's lots of, like I said, lots of flowing rivers of water. They have areas to kind of graze and, and eat. But, the, but keep in mind, sometimes we're afraid of the shadow areas, but they are places of refreshing. And you'll see that as we have. For us too, God provides divine opportunities in these shadows of the valley. The good shepherd's promises and perspective in the valley and shadows experiences are what keep the sheep confident and comfortable. When we are following Jesus, our good shepherd, we trust him. We know that he's for us, right? We, we, we sense that he's for us. It says in um, Hebrews 13, 5, I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in John 14, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then in Matthew 28, 20, he says, even to the end of the age, I will be with you. And these are super comforting. These are the promises that strengthen the follower of Jesus. It's the truth of these words that sing true in the shadow and in the dark especially in those times of our lives when we are, we are looking for answers and we are in the dark about it. God is there. He is there. He is in the midst, working all things together for good. Overcoming fear is walking through these, these experiences and allowing God to use us in the lives of others. And I think that's super important is that we walk through shadows and we're confident in the Lord he gives us and he shows us these, these shadowy areas. Um, I want a brother to share with you um, on something that he shared in the shadow of death. And um, Tom, can you come forward so the camera can, and you can bring that and sit in it. But so Tom Hunt uh, was sharing the story and it just moved me, it impacted me. So he's gonna share his testimony about a, a, a shadowy, dark time in the valley of death. And um, so, welcome Tom, Tom Hunt. Just sit in my chair. You just sit there. All right, Tom. <clears throat> well, first of all, I think I need to give you a little background as to really how this all took place. But um, as a young man growing up, um, my father was a professional musician. 
He played with uh, some of the biggest bands of the time. He was with Glenn Miller, um, Woody Herman, the Dorsey Brothers. Uh, and his last gig, big gig, was with uh, Stan Kenton. And uh, Dad's mistress was his music. And um, Dad started playing when he was about seven years old in the Catholic Church. Um, one of the nuns gave him a violin and found out that he was a child prodigy. Never had a lesson. Mm. He was the most phenomenal musician that I think most men knew. He was a musician's musician. He played saxophone, clarinet, and jazz violin. Uh, played with symphonies too, but um, he was a full range musician. At the age of 14, he played with Paul Whiteman's orchestra and he was on the recording of Rhapsody in Blue with George Gershman playing piano. Uh, and he was only four, uh, 14 years old at the time. And at that time, he started drinking. <laughs> and um, needless to say, he was in the jazz age. And uh, as most musicians back then, uh, no different than today, really, other than the fact that most of them were drinking booze and maybe at the worst, smoking marijuana or popping Benzedrine, or they called them Bennies, to keep going because of the road that they were on and over the one-night stands. Um, Dad was um, one of those guys that was such a perfectionist. Uh, people with a perfect ear are poor teachers. So he discouraged me from playing. And he later on told me that it was a mistake because he said, you have a phenomenal ear for music, although it's not perfect. <laughs> uh, and he regretted the fact that he didn't really encourage me to take up a, any music. Uh, he told me that I, comedy was a field I should have stayed in. And, I did for a while, but I never did get out of it, I guess. Um, I don't want to drag this on too long, but I just felt that it's necessary to give you a little background of my family. Uh, my whole family were alcoholics. Uh, my dad, my mom, my two brothers, my sister, and I. But I quit drinking 50 years ago, and so did my sister. Um, my two brothers, uh, I, I lost them uh, to cirrhosis of the liver, emphysema. Um, Jim was 64 and Terry was 63. Those are my younger brothers. My sister's still alive. She's um, 78 and I'm 80. I'll be 81 this November. So we both quit drinking at the same time. It was the hand of God. There's no doubt we realized that. But I never had any doubt that my, my dad loved me. I, I, you know, even though he was a heavy drinker, um, I never, even my mother too, I, I knew they loved me and uh, I wasn't abused or anything like that. We, we weren't poor, but we were far from rich. We had a pretty darn good life growing up, except I could tell you some experiences about drinking that was a little rough, especially with my mother. Um, and when my dad died, my mother quit drinking and she lived to be 85 and lived a very fruitful life. Uh, but when I was uh, 32 years old, I moved my family, four kids and my wife, out here from uh, Michigan. It was like the grapes of wrath coming out here because <laughs> I had four kids in a car, about $1,400 in our pocket, and we came out to California to get started. Of course, when I came out here, I was a practicing Catholic, and so was my wife. And My wife, uh, when we first got out here, started going to Catherine Coleman. And she asked the Lord into her life. And of course, I made a lot of fun of it. It was good comedic material for me, especially Catherine, you know. And, um, but 
lo and behold, the Lord got a hold of me, and I turned my life over to him in 1972. So word got back to Michigan that I would turned out to be a Jesus freak in California with all the <laughs> fruits and nuts out here, and the rest are flakes, you know, like a bowl of cereal. <clears throat> and um, so my dad had been uh, hospitalized, and I got a call in 1975, and they said, Pop's not going to make it, and we think you ought to come home. So I got on a plane, and I got home, and got to the hospital. And um, as I came in the hospital, the family was out there, and they were in mourning clothes already, basically. And the priest came out of the room, and he said, he kicked me out of the room, told me, he said, just get the hell out of here. I don't even want to see you. And he says, I tried to give him last rites, but he said, you know, I don't, I'll come back and try tomorrow. And I hadn't even said, I just said hi to my mom and gave her a hug. And I said, well, Father, let's leave him to the Lord. And he looked at me and he says, well, I guess we have no choice. And I said, yeah, that's right. So I went in to visit him, and he hadn't seen me in three or four years. And when I walked in there, he, you know, you've seen pictures of people in Auschwitz. Well, that's how Dad looked. He was just, you know, he looked like he just had been starved and all that. He was, he was really on his last legs. And, but he had these deep brown eyes. And he, I came in there, and he didn't say, hi, good to see you or anything, because we talked over the phone, and he knew that we talked about loving each other and all that. He looked at me and said, you send that priest in here? I said, no, Dad, I didn't send him in here. He says, well, who sent him in here? I said, well, I don't know. I said, uh, well, he said, How, why would he come? And I said, well, when you came in here, didn't you say you were a Catholic? And he said, yeah. I said, well, he came in to give you last rites. Oh. He said, am I dying? And I said, yeah, Dad, you're dying. <laughs> oh, well, he said, you're the first one that's been honest with me about that anyway. So we shared and so on and so forth. Um, I didn't share the Lord with him. I just, I just showed him I loved him, and we talked and talked. And I came out. And when my brother looked at me, he says, you didn't talk to him about that Jesus crap, did you? And I said, you know, he's my father. And I said, I talked to him. So the second night, no, that night, I've been asleep since about 1130. And I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, really clear. And the voice said, go see your dad. It was a, a very clear voice that came within me and said, go see your dad. So I, and the hospital wasn't that far. It's a small town in Ionia, Michigan, you know. It's a hop, skip, and a jump to the hospital. So I get to the hospital about 2.30. I go into the room, and he's laying there, and he looks at me, and he says, what are you doing here? It's, what, what, I, in a very weak voice. I said, Dad, I said, I couldn't sleep, and something just told me to come, and come here to visit you. He said, you know what? He says, I, and I won't say it how he said it, but he said, I have to go to the bathroom. And he says, I'm embarrassed when anybody else helps me. And I, he said, I have to go. Can you help me go? And I said, sure. So I don't have to go into any detail, but I had to lift him to get him on the bedpan and the whole bit, you know. And get it all done, and um, I'm cleaning him up, and the nurse comes in. And she says, what in the world are you doing? I said, well, I have my dad, you know, have a bowel movement, and I'm cleaning him up. She says, you idiot. She said, he's got staph infection. You're supposed to gown up and have gloves on. And I, I forgot you were supposed to do that. And I said, 
Well, I said, it's too late now. I said, if I die helping my dad, then I'm ready to go. And she said, oh, another freako. You know, she walked out. <laughs> so as I'm adjusting the thing, my dad, I'm helping him a little bit, and I'm putting the pillow under him. And he looked up at me, and it was deep, he had these deep brown eyes. I'd never forget that look he had when he looked at me, and he said, you know, I don't want you to get that, that, that infection. He said, I said, Dad, I said, you have nothing to worry about. I said, if I die, I'm ready. And he says, well, he said, that's easy for you to say, but he says, I've been a no good, and I'll use the word bastard all my life. And I said, Dad, I've been a no good bastard all my life too. And I said, but, I said, it's Christ that has renewed me. And I said, I've asked for forgiveness for what I've done. And he said, but it's a little late. He says, it's, isn't it a little late? I says, Dad, no, it's not too late. I says, don't you remember the story of Jesus on the cross? And I said, those two thieves were hanging on each side of him, one on each side. And one of those thieves looked over at him and said, and sort of in a really nasty way said, well, if you're truly the God, why don't you save us and yourself? And the other thief rebuked him and said, you know, we are getting what we deserve, but this man does not deserve what he's doing, and don't you fear God? And I said, and Jesus looked at him, and what did Jesus say after he recognized that Jesus was God? And my dad, he, he remembered that from catechism, I guess, in the Catholic school. He said something about he'll be with me in paradise. I said, he said, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I said, Dad, all you got to do is pray, ask for forgiveness, and ask Jesus into your heart, and you will be saved. And I said, you want me to pray? And he said, I want to pray. We prayed. And I gave him a kiss on the forehead. And he looked up at me, and he said, with a big smile, I'm ready. And he was dead within about 20 seconds in my arms. Now, I've got to tell you the cap to this thing. The priest <laughs> comes to the funeral. Now, my dad was very well known in town, but he was, ended up being the, literally the town drunk. You know, it, they were delivering a bottle of vodka to him almost every other day. Plus, he was smoking all the pot my brother could get for him. <laughs> so the least that they figured with this man at his funeral, that he's probably in purgatory if he was lucky to make it there, according to the Catholic faith. So I told the priest, I said, I want to give the eulogy for my dad. And he says, go ahead. I don't think he wanted anything to do with it. So as I gave the eulogy and I just expressed exactly what happened, and I said, you don't have to pray for my dad. I said, I don't believe in purgatory. I said this in a Catholic church. I said, I know that by the grace of God, my dad is with the Lord right now. And I said, so you need to pray for my mother and the family. I says, but my dad is with his heavenly father. And after I got done, that priest came up to me and he put his arm over my shoulder and he said, I couldn't have done that. He said, but I really appreciated it. So all I'm saying is, you'd never give up. You'd never give up. You never know when the Lord's going to call you to be that witness. Um, 
I prayed for my father and my mother. My, I led my mother to the Lord. My two brothers accepted the Lord. So all my favorite words of Winston Churchill is never give up because Christ never gives up. Wow. Thank you, Tom. That's a divine shadow opportunity, you know, and if you're put in that position and ready for that, that's what happens. Salvation comes. Tom, thanks for sharing that story. That touched me the first time you said it and it touched me now. Amazing. So God does. He provides those um, opportunities for us to, to find him and, and seek him. And the other thing that we are going to see, too, is, is that, in the, in that the death shadow, number three, has no power. Like in Tom's dad, the enemy was going to snatch him away, and because of the power of Jesus Christ and the word of his testimony, he became, he went from death unto life, okay, instead of the opposite and from life to death. Um, and that's, that's the power of Jesus. And so we, we got to know that. that and, and we need to also know this, that it says in this verse, it's the valley of the shadow of death. And shadows... Um, are just shadows. And a shadow only exists if there's light shining, right? Amen? If the light of Jesus is shining, then you will see the shadow. And that's why shadows are great opportunities. Because I love that, that a shadow can't hurt you. Amen? The shadow of a pit bull can't bite you. The shadow of a great white shark can't attack you. The shadow of a knife can't wound you, and the shadow of a club can't beat you. Same with the shadow of death. It will not kill you. Also, one thing that I learned about shadows, shadows are great reminders of false fears. I'm going to say that again. Shadows are reminders of false fear. A fearless follower of Jesus will recognize a false fear. And let's look at this next scripture, a famous story um, that we'll see next. We have, um, right, we said it, David and Goliath. It says the fearless follower David defeats Goliath. And we learn some lessons in faith in 1 Samuel 17, um, because our God is with me. And I, and I, I know that, uh, this this passage, it says in this, I will fear no evil for you are with me. For you are with me. And I think, I, re- I believe that David, and, and this is just a hunch, but I believe that David was looking to this time, uh, the biggest battle of David's life. And, um, and, I, and I like how this David talks. He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He's talking to God. He's praying to God in this. And David takes Goliath. And and the number one thing we see is that standing against fear and failure. We know that in this situation that David um, and the army of Israel were standing against the Philistine. And the Philistine had this big giant named Goliath who was taunting them and getting them to challenge him to a fight. And one thing that we see, um, especially in verse 26, if you want to turn to um, 
Samuel 17, you can kind of pick up on the story a little bit. But um, I'm going to drop to verse 26. Check, Check this out. It says, Then David spoke to men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For he is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David had some, some, um, I think, chutzpah here where he said, I am not going to let this man um, talk trash about my God. And one thing that we learn in verse 32 and 33, it says this, 32, then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And here's what Saul said. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. And so one of the things is that David um, is going to stand against is fear and failure. He's not going to let Saul dictate um, his failure right out the gate. And I, I play sports. I play beach volleyball. I also coach volleyball and um, I tell my team, we're going to take out the big, tall girls. You know, that's, that's her strategy because they are the ones that need to get taken out. And so, and I think David feels confident. He's like, we're going to take out the big, strong man here. And there's doubt uh, on Saul's part, but David overcomes that, that fear and failure. Number two, standing in the testimony of God's past faithfulness for his present promise. Let's look at verse 34 and 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when the, a lion or a bear came back and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth. And when it rose again, I caught it in its beard and I stuck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear and the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defiled the armies of the living God. I love that David uses logic with Saul to say, hey, I've done this before. I, if I can kill a bear and a lion, that's way more scarier than some man, some big giant man. So David is using logic with Saul saying, hey, I can take this guy on. And so that's what I love, that God's past faithfulness is always... Um, a faith builder to our present circumstances. And number three, standing in God's power and resisting man's provision. Let's look at verse 38. It says, uh, so Saul clothed David with the armor and he put on a bronze helmet and on his head. And he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to this armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And then he put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had and his sling, which was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So check this out. David rejects the armor of Saul, which all of us should do because our God is bigger than the armor of man. And I think the world is always going to try to entice you with their solutions, their armor. And David had enough logic and sense 
and faith to say, I'm not going to take the armor of man, but I'm going to put on the power of God. And check this out. I'm going to drop down to verses 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head off from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. 47. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into your hands. David has such confidence in his God, such he's got such a big view of God and a perspective of God that he's able to, to blast her. And then we know how the end of the story ends. We know that David takes a slingshot, hits, um, Goliath right in the forehead and he falls to his death. And then David in a victory lap cuts his head off and marches his head to Jerusalem because he's got a big God with his sword. Yes. Yes. Jim, David uses Goliath's sword to mock him and cut off his own head and takes that head Uh, as a trophy to Jerusalem, and he puts his armor in his tent. So David has a big God. Uh, I love Isaiah 41.10. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that is a beautiful, beautiful promise that God has. And we know that story ends well. Number two, Jesus, our fearless shepherd, provides divine protection to bring comfort to our troubled souls. This verse I love. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod of God represents the divine inspired word of God and is used three ways to comfort the sheep. Number one, it's authoritative. Number two, it's introspective. And number three, it's protective. And we're going to look at that right now. The rod of God, it's authoritative. The the word of God has authority in our lives. Um, Look what, and Moses, Moses had the rod of God. He led the nation of Israel when their backs were against the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh was coming. Moses used his staff, the staff or the rod of authority to open up the seas And even um, when the plagues came, you can see Moses there turning the water into blood. And he's standing in authority against Pharaoh um, on behalf of God, pleading to let the people go. And we know how that ends, right? God God delivers this nation. Here's another um, picture. We all see this. Jesus is tempted by Satan in Matthew 4. And, and Jesus uses the word of God. Man shall not eat by bread alone because Satan tempts him with, hey, he had just fasted for 40 days. He's temp- tempting him with bread. But Jesus says, man shall not eat by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The other thing is that um, the rod 
of God is introspective. So this rod is this cool kind of ball-shaped kind of handle thing that has a big ball on it. And you can throw it like a knife. Um, You can beat sheep with. But it's also introspective. So they they use the rod... um, to count the sheep as well. It was, a, it was a sheep counter. And then it also was used to kind of get under the skin of the sheep to look for parasites and bugs. And I love this kind of insight that the Lord gave me. He says, all, obviously when we are, as, as God's sheep, I think there are times that we need to be looked at closely with the rod of God. And he says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. And so we see this sheep right here who is um, kind of plagued with parasites. And then we see the sheep that has no blemish right here. And the sheep with no blemish, that should remind you of member the temple when they would bring their sheep to the temple is because they had to inspect them to make sure there were no blemishes. And I think um, often that we, as God's sheep, need to be conscious of what is happening on the inside of us. And, is, and I'm, I feel comforted when God is probe, using his word to probe my heart. And I know some of us get uncomfortable. We get a little squirmy. You know, we, we don't want God's um, rod um, poking at us, but, but he does it for our, for our best and for our good. Uh, the rod is protective, the rod is protective. It, it, you know, it beats off the coyotes. It beats off the bears. <clears throat> when we, um, we see John, uh, in John uh, chapter 10, verses 7 through 16, Jesus is, it says that Jesus is the gatekeeper of the sheep, that he protects his sheep, that he knows his sheep by name. And he says, I am the good shepherd. And he tells his sheep, he says, I have come to give life, life more abundantly, but the robbers and the thieves, they've come to steal and destroy. And, and he says, I am the good shepherd and I'm gonna take care of my sheep. And, and what a shepherd does is he uses that rod to beat off the en- enemy. We see this uh, perspective um, in Ezekiel too, where God calls out the irresponsible, neglectful shepherds of Israel. And Ezekiel 34, 22 says, I will save my flock for they will no longer be prey. There was a, it was a bad time in Israel where the shepherds of Israel were neglecting the, the God's flock. The other thing is the staff. We love the staff. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. Number one, um, the staff brings correction and perfection. And we've heard that, those terms before, right? For storms, these are two kinds of storms we face as Christians. The storms of correction. Remember Jonah tried to squirm out of God's will and out of his, his uh, mission. And what happened? He got swallowed up and, and got corrected, got put back on mission. And then we have storms of perfection that grow us as believers. We know that when the disciples were in a storm with Jesus, their, their faith was failing and, and lacking. And they needed God to uh, encourage them. They needed God to say to the wind and sea, peace be still. And to grow the disciples to say, this is going to be a storm of perfection. I need you to trust me. I need you to, 
to see that I'm God. The staff also brings direction, and this is key. We need direction in our lives. This one verse, I love this verse in Proverbs 29, 18, uh, out of the King James Bible, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And the good news translation is even better. A nation without God's guidance is a nation without order. Happy are those who keep God's laws. And you've seen this, you guys. Our state and our country is confused in the direction and the vision it's going in. Um, It's way better now than it has ever been. But I think with these two opposing entities dividing our country, we are like sheep without a shepherd. And I think that it's, and I really believe with all my heart, I love what um, the mission of our church is doing, is, is, is seeking God for the direction and for the shepherding um, of our state and of our nation. I love what Rob's doing. I love his mission. I love his heart for this. Um, but this is important. People will perish. Things will go south. Things will go awry if there isn't guidance, if there isn't vision. And so as God is taking his sheep, he's going to use that staff to direct them and give them direction like any good shepherd would do. The staff, of, the staff and rod of God's word protects and guides us like the armor of God that we see in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. It's both defensive and offensive. We see the armor of God. We see that helmet of salvation. We see the breastplate of righteousness, which is guarding the heart. We see the um, shield of faith that quenches all the fiery darts. Uh, of the believer. And then we see the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is offensive and defensive. And then we see um, marching are the boots of peace. And that is the gospel of Jesus. And again, that helmet of salvation, it protects that mind, um, that, that mind that Jesus has given us to, to um, think and to process his word, which is good. Number three, our fearless shepherd, Jesus, prepares the table of salvation to encourage our souls with true and faithful promises in the midst of our enemies. It says in verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I love this, that Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I love that Jesus has the shepherd of a, of a host. He's got the heart of a host. He invites all to come into his kingdom, the promise of a salvation, safety from the enemy of our souls and the destruction of sin and death. I love that picture of this table. And it's interesting, in the shepherd's world, a table really is, is kind of a land, is kind of the plateau's of the, um, the coming up out of the valley, the shepherds would take them up to these plateaus. And that what they would do, the shepherds would clear the plateaus of any poisonous weeds or any predators. And that was kind of preparing the table. You've heard of the term mesa, right? The mesas. 
It's a Spanish-European term. Well, mesa also means table in Spanish. And they called it the Alps lands or the table lands. And so David was picturing in his mind the plateaus that where he would take his sheep. And he was reminiscing. And he, and he, and he in poetry, mixed this beautiful picture of God preparing this table, um, kind of taking out the poison um, things and giving us the, the, the fat of the land. The other thing too is the communion table invites us all to be at the table of salvation. I love we have the communion tables here tonight. We're gonna take communion. It's gonna be amazing. Um, I love that the communion table represents this beautiful table that God has prepared. It's a table of joy. It's a place where we can come celebrate the victory of Jesus, where his body was broken and his blood was poured on our behalf. And it's so awesome. At the communion table, we find forgiveness, we find restoration, and we find reconciliation to a God who loves us. And I love that we can boldly come to Jesus. And it's where the disciples met him for this new covenant that they would enter in. And it's exciting. It's an exciting place. And the communion table is powerful because it's the consummation between us and God. It's that place that he says, because I, my body is broken and my blood was spilt, we can look across to our enemies and say, death, where is your sting? Right? We can say, sin, where is your bite? Because Jesus took it. We can look at our enemies and the enemies of our soul. I don't have any outward enemies. I don't have people chasing me like David. But I do have enemies within. I'm sure all of us have some enemies within. And that's where we deal with our enemies, at God's banqueting table. He's, it's that table he prepares, the communion table, to deal with all that. I love it because when I can come to the king's table and I can look across my enemy and just say, yeah, Jesus conquered sin and death on my behalf, I'm totally at peace. I can be the sheep that can lay down and graze off that table all day long. And I love that, I love that Jesus on the cross, he said this one word, he said, to Stelisai. He said, it means it is finished. It is finished. And that is what that table represents. It is finished. I can knock on your door and dine with you now because man has been reconciled to God. And if any of you are here have not come to Jesus and you have not tasted of his banqueting table, I want to invite you tonight to give your life to Jesus and to taste and see that he is good. The fearless follower possesses God's spirit and his anointing to live a life that is abundant and overflowing. Verse five says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. This is a beautiful thing where we see uh, David, his head is being anointed with oil. When he became the king of Israel, Samuel took David from all his seven brothers and he and God said don't look at the outward appearance but look at his heart 
And God saw the shepherd, shepherd's heart in David, and Samuel anointed him with oil. We, we know that story. We see that story in uh, 1 Samuel 16. And what is so cool about the anointing oil of God is that oil is symbolic of God's Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's overwhelming. And I think, I think David is looking at this and he's saying, my, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. I think he's at a place where he's like, God, you're blowing my mind with this. Con- because what God has to give up to us as believers is not enough. I don't think our vessels are big enough to handle what God is willing to give to us. And so when you're a willing vessel of God, it's going to flow over. It's going to be abundant. It's going to get everywhere. It's going to get on your family. It's going to get on your coworkers. It's going to get on people that you love. This overflowing cup. And that is the picture of of the Christian lifestyle. And I, I know David just saw this beautiful cup that God had for him and said, hey, Lord, give it all to me. I'm willing. I will receive it. Number five, Jesus, our good shepherd, provides goodness and mercy to follow us in life's journey as a promise of his faithfulness. I love this. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Um, one thing we have is for goodness and mercy. I look at them as two sheepdogs, goodness and mercy. Think about two sheepdogs that are following you all the way around. You know, you're falling, you're stumbling through life, you're getting banged up, and you got goodness and mercy licking your wounds. It's a beautiful picture. And that's kind of how I see goodness and mercy. I, I, I see them as these two dogs that would just kind of follow me all around. Um, even in my foolish antics, we see these guys coming. Um, that goodness and mercy follow me. Not only will it follow me, but ultimately follow those that I lead to Jesus. So people that I directly am involved with, that I'm discipling, that I'm leading to Jesus. Isn't that cool that mercy and goodness will follow them as well? They are right there. <laughs> They're part, of, they're part of the herd, so to speak. They're part of the sheepfold. Our job, and I would say our role, is to allow goodness and mercy to follow us and then allow that for our loved ones as, to, as well. Number six, our great shepherd gives us the ultimate promise of security, safety, and serenity to be in his house forever. Verse six, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love this verse, John 14, one. This gave me great comfort when I was with my dad because I knew this. And, and, and Jesus said this to his disciples as Jesus was going to, going to his death. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. 
And where I go, you know. And the way you know. And then I love, don't you guys love Thomas? He's going to ask the question that no one's going to ask. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, right? That's the dumb question. And how can we know the way? Which I think is a brilliant question because I would have asked the same thing, but I just wouldn't, I would have kept it to myself. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through the good shepherd. And when I was um, just praying and meditating on my dad, I just, I said, Lord, take him now. You've got a place already for him, prepared for him. And, and you know what? I'm going to join him one day. God's got a place for me. Prepared for me. So I, 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 there's no fear of death in my life. Now, my wife would tell you something different, but I, I, truly, I truly am comforted by that verse. I want to share one, one more verse, and then we'll wrap it up, and, and we'll do communion. Um, this was really cool. I took great comfort. Even, you know, my dad wasn't like, the greatest Jesus follower. He just wasn't. He was okay at it, you know, I would say. But you know what one thing he was? He was a loyal follower. He was loyal. You know, he was a he was a born-again Catholic. He went to church every Sunday. In fact, it's so funny. My dad led my mom to the Lord because when they first got married, he challenged her. He said, he said, honey, um, if you can't give God 30 minutes, then he said, that's sad. <laughs> and, and convinced my mom to go to church. And when my mom went to church, she finally led all of us to the Lord, my sister and I. And so just that simple challenge to my mom. And I, and I, and I really thank my dad for that. I, I do. I thank him that he had the boldness to say, hey, our family's going to go to church. Even though he wasn't the greatest Jesus follower, um, he was loyal, and um, he was willing. But um, this one verse, uh, Michelle McCoy sent to me. She, I, I loved it. Just you know, she thanked. Um, she she sent me a verse just to try to comfort my heart. It's in First Corinthians. It says, First uh, Corinthians thirteen: Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, just meaning we don't have the full story, you guys, on this side of heaven. Um, it will vanish away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And verse 12, this is the one that ministered to me. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know my papa is seeing Jesus face to face right now. And there's no confusion. There's nothing, there's nothing dim about it. He is as clear as a nice day. And, and, and this, is, this is what I love, that my dad's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He wasn't a perfect follower, but he, but he did follow. 
He made that commitment. Like Tom's dad, he was the, the thief on the cross, you know, squeaked into heaven, you know, just, just made it. And that's God's mercy. That's his grace. And it's, it's amazing to, to know. And then it says, no, I, I, um, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And you guys, Jesus is the only reason that love never fails. Amen? Why is that? Because the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. So, when, the, when Jesus, the good shepherd, is near, what? We shall not fear. Amen? Amen. Amen.